Welcome to the Twimmel AI Podcast. I'm your host, Sam Charrington. All right, everyone, I am here in Montreal at the NeurIPS conference, and I am with Andrew Trask. Andrew is a PhD student at Oxford, as well as leader of the Open Source Open Mind project. Andrew, welcome to This Week in Machine Learning and AI. Awesome. Thank you. Great to be here. Awesome. Uh, why don't we get started by having you tell us a little bit about your background? How'd you get involved in machine learning and uh, privacy and the, the intersection of those two? Yeah, so um, I went to undergrad uh, at a liberal arts college in uh, Tennessee called Belmont University. And um, while I was there, I, uh, <laughs> I was originally a music student and I, I stumbled into um, a CS course, um, dabbled around uh, and there was an AI course um, and got, that got me really into machine learning. So as soon as I, um, uh, there's this really great professor named uh, Dr. Hooper, as, as many great stories start, um, a really compelling professor teaching uh, really exciting concepts. Um, and I trained my first neural nets and got them to converge and, and got a paper into an undergraduate conference. And at that point, I was, I was pretty committed on the machine learning front. Um, after that, I joined a, uh, a local company called Digital Reasoning that does um, deep learning and AI at scale um, on private data sets. They're so, in Nashville, actually, right? Yeah, yeah, they're in Nashville. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, uh, yeah. yeah, Belmont's also in Nashville. Okay. Oh, okay. Got yeah, it. Yeah. Um, and uh, that's when I really got exposed to the power of of doing machine learning on data that you don't have access to. So, I mean, they, they work mm -hmm. with, you know... Um, a lot of government agencies. A lot of government agencies. Three-letter like, agencies. Yeah, yeah, the, uh, the intelligence community. Pretty, pretty... Uh, oh, that's awesome. Um, and then, obviously, um, you know, it was funny. They, some of the investment banking clients were actually even harder to work with because, you know, they we, we often did a sort of compliance use case uh, trying okay. to help help them detect any insider threats like uh, insider trading or, or any other kind of illegal activities within their own employees. Okay. Um, so... Uh, but yeah, anyway, so all, all throughout that story, um, uh, I, got, I got to dabble in research as well as product management there um, and really just came to appreciate how challenging it is to do machine learning and deep learning on unseen data. Um, so when I left to do a PhD, uh, I had uh, already a very good appreciation for that and also some sort of high-level understanding of the challenges of that environment. Um, and then um, during my first year at, at Oxford, um, the first year of PhD is often very sort of exploratory, um, mm -hmm. and one of the th first things I came across was uh, homomorphic encryption, which just to me was was absolutely magical. I couldn't believe that you could do computation on encrypted data, um, and I wrote a, a blog post sort of just trying to jerry-rig some homomorphic encryption code that I found with training a neural net, um, mm. and I, I got a tremendous amount of positive feedback from it. Um, ended up chatting with some folks at the Future Humanity Institute um, in Oxford, so I don't know if you know yeah. Nick Bostrom and kind of the... Mm -hmm. the safety work that they do. Um, and it just became really clear that there was a really exciting research opportunity here that, that one, was, was underserved, so there weren't many people working on it. And secondarily, mm -hmm. um, and perhaps more importantly, um, that there was good reason to believe that we can make a lot of progress in a relatively short period of time on a, on a topic with pretty significant social gains. Mm -hmm. And so that, at the beginning of the PhD, is a no-brainer. Like you, <laughs> you actually want to jump on those kind of opportunities. Um, and since then, what I've discovered is that Tons of great work has gone on in sort of the field of cryptography. Um, tons of great work has gone on in the field of statistics and, of course, in machine learning and deep learning. But these three communities, they don't necessarily talk as much as they should. Okay. Um, and so by simply trying to become as familiar as fast as possible with sort of the, 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 the core primitives of these th three different fields um, and by just trying to combine them um, in, in ways that solve important use cases, um, 
I think we've already been able to make quite a bit of, of progress and, and expect to do so in the, in the future. So mm -hmm. that's kind of where I'm at. Nice, nice. Are there uh, some kind of core concepts, maybe from the cryptography side, that it makes sense to kind of talk about? Like you mentioned homomorphic encryption yeah. uh, that are fundamental to all the rest of the stuff you're doing? Or um, yeah. is it better to go top down? Um, yeah, so I mean, uh, um, the three core concepts that we deal with, two of which are from cryptography, are um, differential privacy and secure multi-party computation. So, mm -hmm. um, uh, and then there's federated learning from the machine learning side. Okay. Um, so those those three things kind of make up um, what I think is the future of privacy preserving machine learning. Um, mm -hmm. So differential privacy is concerned with, I suppose your, your viewers already know this, um, with, in the context of machine learning, differential privacy is focused on um, um, allowing models to sort of learn from a training data set without them accidentally learning information we don't want them to learn, like, you know, private the training data itself, for exactly. example. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Or, or, or it's in any specific features about a specific person, right? right. So it might, um, a good example might be, uh, you want a model to learn to identify cancer in radiology scans mm -hmm. um, without it memorizing which individual person has cancer, right? right? Um, and uh, so yeah, differential privacy is super important. That one is already, um, there's already good community form between that and the machine learning community. Um, it's really exciting to see that, that develop. Um, homomorphic encryption and secure multi-party computation um, are a little less known. Um, in particular, uh, secure multi-party computation, well, I'll just say, I'll say secure MPC from now on for short, because <laughs> um, it's such a wordy, wordy thing. Um, homomorphic encryption, I think, is more intuitive for people because it's actually, it's sort of a, it's typically laid out in the, the form of a standard encryption. So you'll have a public key and a private key, and you'll, mm -hmm. use the, you'll use the private key to encrypt something, right? So I can encrypt the number five, and then I can give it to you. Um, and while it's in its encrypted state, you know, while you have it and I can't see it, you can do arithmetic with that number, right? Mm -hmm. And you could do computation with that number. Um, and then you can give the result back to me, still encrypted, and I can decrypt the result. And so that's interesting from a machine learning standpoint because I can take, say, all the parameters of my model. So a model, you know, a neural net, for example, is just a big collection of numbers. I can encrypt all of them. I can give them to you. And then you can do prediction or training um, or anything else that you'd like to do with a machine learning model. Um, and then, um, so if you do training, for example, you can give me back the resulting model and I you were able to, it's sort of a one-way one way, uh, information flow where you're able to make the model smarter, but you're not actually able to use it. So there's lots mm -hmm. of interesting commercial use cases that protect privacy in, mm -hmm. in that context. The, the one, and, and some people have heard about this, so homomorphic encryption is sort of mildly well-known. Um, but the problem is, is that it's, it's very, very slow. So I mean, it's, it's um, several, meaning more than five orders of magnitude slower than than typical what we call plain text computation, what we do normally. Okay. Um, and this is where MPC really starts to become interesting. Um, so there's, um, secure MPC is a di slightly different setup. Um, um, instead of trying to encrypt a number, um, we actually split it into what's called shares. So um, let's say we wanted to encrypt the number five. I can mm -hmm. take the number five, I can split it into two shares, we'll say a two and a three, right? Mm -hmm. And I can give you the three and I can hang on to the two. So the three is your share, the two is my share. Um, and now we could restore this number five by just adding these two shares together, if that mm -hmm. makes sense. Um, but the interesting thing about Secure MPC is that while it's in this state, neither of us know what the number is that's hidden between us, right? right. So not, you, you, you may have no idea that this was a five, mm -hmm. um, but we can, we can compute over it. So um, let's say we wanted to multiply it times two. Like if, you right. if you multiply your share times two, I multiply my share times two, then this hidden value that's between us was also multiplied by two. 
Um, this is better than homomorphic encryption for two reasons. One, um, it's much faster, typically. Um, so there's a recent paper showing that you could train a deep convnet um, that's only 20 times slower than the normal, which I know that sounds mildly annoying to anyone who's training deep neural nets, but it's totally different than like <laughs> 10,000 or 100,000 times slower, right? Um, is, it, is it faster uh, only in aggregate or for each individual uh, participant? Um, so it is... Uh, in this specific setup, it's it's um, two or three party computation. So we've, okay. we've split this these this deep neural net, all the parameters in it, mm -hmm. um, into into shares that you know three parties own. Um, and it's in that case, it's faster in aggregate. So okay. we, we typically try to measure it in the context of a use case because different functions. So you can imagine this is a protocol, right? And and I described how to multiply this hidden value five by two, mm -hmm. but. Um, Addition is different from multiplication, which is different from comparison operators, um, yeah. which is different than how you bootstrap sine and ReLU and like sigmoid and all these kinds of things. So mm -hmm. we typically try to look at the end use case and, and just sort of give high level um, empirical results for what the slowdown is. Um, okay. But the interesting thing is uh, one more on that. If it's yeah. based on homomorphic encryption, how does it end up being faster than homomorphic? Oh, encryption? so it's it's um, it's not. It's not always based on homomorphic encryption. Um, okay. Sometimes there's a homomorphic encryption component. They kind of steal ideas from each other. Yeah. Um, but the, the cool thing is that it's since it's not a form of encryption, um, it, it actually it's it's a it's a protocol through, for sharing. Um, ah, so encryption is not necessarily involved. It's more. Yeah, so it, it's it's funny because it has an API that's very similar to encryption to the extent that okay. I can take a value um, yeah. and I can make it so that a group of people can't see it, right? But we can still compute over it. Mm -hmm. So to that extent, it can do everything that homomorphic encryption can do, but it has two specific properties that are different. Um, well, so three. One, it's a lot faster because uh, you basically you're exchanging um, heavy compute, typically, which is homomorphic encryption, mm -hmm. for more network overhead. So whereas with homomorphic okay. encryption, I could just send you an encrypted asset and you can do things with it. Mm -hmm. um, with MPC, we have to be online the whole time. It's, a, it's a, mm -hmm. a protocol for how we can exchange messages in a way to compute functions on, on hidden data. Mm -hmm. um, and the, there's, there's two properties that we really like. One, it gets this privacy property. But, but secondarily, and this is different from homomorphic encryption, everyone has a private key. Uh, and this create it's, it's a lot more like um, shared ownership of a data structure instead of just encryption. So in this particular case, you know, if I take a neural net, I take all of its parameters and I split it, split each parameter into four shares, mm -hmm. then I have four governors. I have four owners for this model. And any one of those four people could say, oh, I'm not, I'm not willing to perform computation with you guys on this data point mm. because I haven't been paid or because I don't believe right. in it or, you know, for, for whatever reason, right? Um, and that's fundamentally different from, from homomorphic encryption, which kind of defaults to a single owner who has a single private key. Okay. Um, so yeah, we really like that sort of um, distributed governance um, apparatus. Okay. And so where does OpenMind come in? Yeah, so OpenMind is um, basically about uh, lowering the barrier to entry to being able to use these tools. So um, as, you can, as I described a minute ago, um, you know, these... These communities have kind of lived in separate worlds. So mm -hmm. the crypto community has their own toolkits, typically in C++. The machine learning community has their own toolkits that's like, you know, PyTorch and TensorFlow. Yeah. Um, and, and statistics has their own, which is like R and all these kinds of right. things. So the, the, the problem is, is that if, if I want to do deep learning with securing PC, I either have to take uh, an MPC framework and write all my autograd and my layer types and all that stuff from scratch, okay. or I have to go to a deep learning framework and know all the cryptography to be able to add. And, and hmm. as it turns out, this is prohibitively difficult um, and, <laughs> uh, and nearly 
most papers that I come across, um, people write some big amorphous C++ blob from scratch, um, mm. and then it becomes difficult to repurpose, difficult for industry to pick up. So what OpenMind is all about is about um, installing these cryptography primitives inside of the major deep learning toolkits, so PyTorch and TensorFlow being the first two, so that people in the machine learning community um, don't have to really know anything about cryptography to be able to use them, right? Or be able to do research on them to be able mm -hmm. to study these different protocols. Um, so um, in particular, in one example of that is in, in, in PyTorch, we have this new tensor type that's uh, an MPC shared tensor, right? So it, okay. it feels like a normal tensor, has the same API, but every time you add two tensors together, under the hood, it actually sends messages to multiple different machines and, and, and does the protocol correctly. Is, is the multi-party aspect of it, is it like widely distributed? Like you might think of, uh, you know, the, the parties representing actual people that are in different corners of the earth, or is it, um, are the parties typically like computational processes that might be local, you know, to uh, an environment and under the same control? Like how does it typically, what's oh, the typical topology? Great question. Um, so for the purpose of development, Mm -hmm. um, we've got nice sort of what we call virtual workers that will simulate it on one machine so that you can build protocols and that kind of thing. Yeah. But in the context of, of a more real-world use case, um, there's, there's different philosophies on how it will actually roll out. So the, the thing to know is that the more people you have governing a data point, the more people have to touch it for it to be decrypted or for it to be used in computation. Mm -hmm. So meaning the more owners it has, the slower the computation is going to go. Um, so our vision is that most of sort of privacy preserving machine learning will operate with two owners at a time because that's sort of the fastest version of it. And this is where, um, as I think I mentioned, I may have mentioned this before, we really see a, a trifecta of like three core technologies coming together, secure multi-party computation being one of them, mm -hmm. and then federated learning and differential privacy being the other. So the nice thing about federated learning is it's a protocol that allows um, me as a, as a model owner to train a model on a highly distributed data set by, by performing training with one person at a time, right? So I, mm -hmm. I'll, um, I'll send a model to someone um, and it will train there for a while. I, mean, I think I could do this like with 10 people in parallel. Okay. Um, but the nice thing is that, um, uh, actually I should, I, should, I should probably come back to that. So the, the short answer is okay. I see it happening two people at a time. Okay. Um, and when you combine it with these other technologies, that actually works out um, okay. to, be, to be quite performed. When do you want to go back to the uh, federated? Oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> so I guess, I guess, it's an interesting topic. Yeah, yeah. How well developed is that in the literature? The models for federated machine learning. I've seen a lot of work on distributed training, uh, and then more recently in the context of like IoT and like edge devices, federated training in that sense where you are trying to do some amount of learning kind of at the edge, but also share the model back to some centralized thing so that it could mm -hmm. incorporate learning from other edge devices, but also so that it becomes like the master, the master model. And then you yeah. ship out updates back out to the, mm -hmm. the other uh, edge devices. I don't yeah. know if the same kinds of techniques apply or what the yeah. overlap might be there. They, they absolutely do. So I think federated learning is, out of these three things, like federated learning, multi-party computation, and differential privacy, mm -hmm. federated learning is the most mature. I mean, to okay. that extent, so if, if you have a smartphone and you open it up and, and you go to text someone, you know, it tries to recommend the next word for mm -hmm. your text. Um, that model for both, to my knowledge, to both Apple and Google, um, is trained using federated learning. So to that extent, federated learning is already deployed on you know, billions of devices around the planet. Okay. Um, so, so to that extent, it's, it's quite robust. Um, 
Uh, and the, the nice thing about federated learning, so I guess for anyone listening that doesn't know what federated learning is, um, typically when you're training a machine learning model, you would, you would aggregate all the data to sort of one central server, um, then you'd initialize a random model, and then you'd train it on that data, right? Um, so federated learning kind of flips the script and says, instead of bringing all the data to the model in one location, you're gonna bring the model out to the data wherever it already lives. And, and the general goal is that whoever owns the data doesn't wanna to have to send it to someone. They wanna own and maintain the only copy. Um, so in this particular case, this means that, you know, if I've got a, a billion phones, I as a central server will then send the model with some instructions on how to train it down to individual data owners. Mm -hmm. um, and this is where, um, the nice thing about that is it does two things. One, it protects the privacy of the data, and two, it typically actually results in less communication than sending the data to the cloud. So if you look at the original, um, the original uh, paper um, on federated learning from Brendan McMahon, um, they, I think they cited 10 to 100x less network overhead than hmm. sending the data sets to the cloud. I mean, it depends on how big the data set is, but, right. but um, often it can actually be less network intensive. Um, and so as you can imagine, this is where um, MPC comes in. So the, the big, the nice thing here is you protect the privacy of the data, but the problem is, is that you send a plain text copy of the model to potentially thousands or millions of people, right? So if it's, mm -hmm. if this is your $10 million healthcare model, well, then you'll be, you're, you're sort of at risk of any one of these millions of people stealing it and trying to monetize it for themselves. Right. Um, this is where secure MPC becomes interesting. Um, so instead of sending the model, you would MPC share the model uh, and they would MPC share their data set and that would perform sort of encrypted training with you know, each individual person in parallel um, and then only aggregate their gradients sort of, sort of at the end. And this is mm -hmm. why sort of federated learning allows you to do MPC sort of two people at a time, which is quite a bit more optimal. What's the um, kind of user experience of OpenMind? Is it a, a like system level package that they're using or is it more framework level? Is, is the typical user a developer or a data scientist? How do you kind of look at the world from that perspective? Yeah, so, at, so speaking from today, it's mostly at the framework level. So okay. our, our target audience today is, is primarily sort of machine learning researchers, data scientists, um, uh, perhaps working at enterprise wanting to do a pilot in privacy-preserving machine learning. Mm -hmm. So um, the vast majority of the code we've written is extending PyTorch and TensorFlow. So okay. if, you're, if, you're a Py, like if, if you're not a PyTorch or TensorFlow user, or you don't have any, mm -hmm. then, then we're not quite ready for you yet. Um, I think in the future, um, this will likely get packaged more into sort of, you know, here's your here's your federated learning system. Like here's how you spin up the server, and this is mm -hmm. where all your all your data adapters will attach and all that kind of thing. But we we still have quite a bit of code mm -hmm. to write until we get there. And so, is it extending uh, your PyTorch and your TensorFlow in an analogous way to um, the way different distributed training methods are, are working? Yeah. Yes. So um, for for PyTorch, for example. Um, the first thing we built was a, a remote execution protocol. So, um, and uh, for anyone who, who knows PyTorch that's listening, um, it allows you to take a tensor, which is a tensor is a, just a simple list of numbers or nested list of numbers. Um, so if we have a texture called like X equals, you know, some, some tensor, maybe five zeros or something like that. Mm -hmm. I can go X dot send and send it to some machine. I put an address for that machine. Okay. Um, and then what, what gets returned to me is a pointer to that tensor. Um, and then whatever, whatever operate that tip of that pointer has the exact same API as a tensor normally would. So it feels like a normal tensor. Okay. But the nice thing is that then we can use this underlying primitive to coordinate remote executions and to coordinate higher level protocols like secure MPC. Mm -hmm. um, okay. So most of it's built on top of that kind of uh, uh, remote execution 
paradigm. But then the, the API... And that was standard already existing in both PyTorch and TensorFlow, something analogous to it? Um, so PyTorch and TensorFlow have not had pointers in the past, so that's, that's a, a new thing for us. Okay. Um, but the, um, the thing that's, that's, uh, that we try to keep the same is we want that pointer to have to basically have the exact same API as if the data was on your local machine, right? Okay. Because the idea being that we want, to, we want to make it so that you don't have to relearn a new framework or really any other paradigms to be able to use things like federated learning or, or MPC. Mm -hmm. um, and that's why like, so our, our MPC tensor feels like it's a normal tensor. Like it, it feels like it's on your device, has the same API and protocol and you can do the same things. You can call back propagate on, on a lot of, like on the remote tensors. Mm -hmm. um, um, but it's act, under the hood, it's actually doing all the protocol for you, um, such that you don't have to learn that protocol yourself. Okay, and you're, when you're using this, uh, this API or, or to get the pointers, you're specifying the number of parties and mm -hmm. like IP addresses or something like that, or? Yeah, so um, we do have the ability to spin up servers, which we call workers, okay. um, that are connected via you know, uh, sockets or web sockets. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, what you'll get is actually a pointer to that worker on the client side. So we typically name them Bob and Alice canonically just because that's sort of the... Crypto literature. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. Um, so we have a, a big set of tutorials. Actually, we just, we just listed that shows how the whole protocol goes. So if you go to okay. our GitHub slash examples slash... So the PySIF library is the library I'm referring to. Mm -hmm. The PySIF slash examples slash tutorials will have that. But um, um, yeah, so if I'm going to um, if I'm gonna send it, I'll go x, my variable, dot send... And then in parentheses, I can put in one or more workers that I want to send it to and return a okay. pointer to that. And for MPC, I go x.share, and then I pass in a list of people, a list of pointers to their workers that I want to MPC share it to. Yeah. Um, and that's the, sort of the encrypted version. Do you also have kind of flexibility over whether you want to use encryption or just MPC or uh, whether you want to layer in differential privacy or, or is the framework making those kinds of decisions for me? Uh, no, so the framework is, is totally agnostic to those decisions. So okay. um, uh, obviously we have higher level libraries that, that try to give you nice defaults, but mm -hmm. the, the bulk of the framework is this low level protocol for, for allowing you to either design your own sort of remote execution strategies or to pull one of the off the shelf ones that we provide like federated okay. averaging or, or um, uh, specific, different kinds of MPC protocols. So I think we have two different MPC protocols. Okay. And what are the distinctions between the different protocols? Um, so they're APIs primarily. So um, and th so the first one we implemented was called Speeds. Um, so Speeds is a a uh, protocol that allows you to do, in our case, addition um, and multiplication. Um, mm -hmm. And then we extended it with this new protocol called Secure and In, which allows you to do comparison operators. Um, so to do to compare two encrypted numbers. Okay. And then as it turns out, we can bootstrap. Um, sort of the rest of the deep learning API just from those three core primitives. What's been your experience working with uh, folks to try to harness, you know, these three pillars and actually build stuff uh, with them? The one thing that I've noticed is that we, these are still very sparsely known technologies. Yeah. Um, and, and I got to say, one of the most frustrating things for me at the moment is when I watch um, in particular um, new laws get formed around the privacy space and like the conversation around sort of what's needed from a regulatory standpoint mm. um, because this conversation really focuses on some sort of trade-off between privacy and innovation like the question is always along the lines of you know how much data should we should we prevent some institution from having for the sake of privacy um, and is the innovation cost from that worth it um, when in reality, we have these much more nuanced tools that allow us to kind of have our cake and eat it too, um, that are just a, a better trade-off for both parties. 
Um, and it's, it's my deepest hope that we can raise awareness, um, raise awareness of these new tools so that, mm -hmm. that, um, yeah, we don't have to have, you don't have to make concessions on both privacy and innovation that are unnecessary, which I, I personally feel that we've been doing lately. How mature would you say is the, you know, the particular, the, the project, uh, and kind of the ecosystem around it? Like, are, are you finding folks extra? Is it like, a, you know, your personal effort mostly that's kind of pushing along or are there other folks that are kind of jumping in and contributing? How's that been going? Um, so that part's actually been going really well. So, um, I think open mind Slack team at this point has around 3,400 people in it. Wow. Um, yeah. Oh, wow. <laughs> and, um, I think we're up to 170 or 180 people who have contributed code. Oh, wow. Um, so to, to that extent, like, I yeah. think a, a lot of people get that privacy is important and that these tools are a really compelling answer, um, or they could be in the long run and that, that by, by building better research tools and bringing these two kind of crypto and machine learning community together that we can make a lot of progress. Um, and then it's, it's worth their nights and weekends to work on. Uh -huh. Um, that being said, um, I, I would describe PySift today as kind of an alpha, alpha level project. Um, so PySift again is the the, the extension deep to uh, PyTorch and TensorFlow. OpenMind is just kind of the the general community name. Okay. Um, so yeah, PySift is kind of in an alpha phase where where it's got all the features that that we would like for it to have, but they're not necessarily um, at like a product ready state. Um, and they're also using an older version so in, in, in the particular case of, of PyTorch, they're using 0.3.1. So the main push at the moment is to upgrade to PyTorch 1.0, which was recently released, yeah. as well as um, um, to really make them robust enough that the institutions can do kind of uh, pilots and, and practice use cases and these kinds of things. And we're hoping to release that around February, March. And are, are there any examples of use cases uh, that you can talk about? Um, so we are in the midst of crafting several early pilots, but I don't think I can, I don't think they're quite public yet, but okay. I'm, I'm very excited about them. We also um, do have several, um, I think about a half dozen firms that are in the process of putting together uh, research grants for people to work on PySIF and OpenMind full-time, um, oh, which cool. will greatly help both their internal uh, adoption as well as the, the health of the library, which I'm mm -hmm. excited about. Mm -hmm. And so wh where do you see this going? What are some of the next steps for the community and, and your research in, in general? For my personal research, I, I think I want to sort of stay focused on whatever is uh, needed for this stuff to become mainstream and, and widely adopted. Mm -hmm. At the moment, that's raising awareness um, and lowering the barrier to entry for tools that already exist mm -hmm. and, and conducting research to solve sort of the, the holes that still miss in in the technologies, like there are, there are some sub problems, especially in differential privacy that have not yet been solved to the extent that the, the widest use cases could, could be implemented today. Um, so in the next kind of three to six months, I think that it's still mostly a research and open source tool push. Um, in about a six month to 18 month timeline, I think that we're gonna start seeing considerable enterprise adoption. So um, there's already uh, some interesting movement happening um, in Europe as kind of an echo uh, to, to GDPR. Um, there's a handful of startups in the U.S. that I've seen um, kind of growing up in this space. Um, and so I think in probably the, the 6 to 18 months timeline is when, when enterprises, which already have the data, um, will be interested in moving into this space, um, primarily um, finance and healthcare, I would imagine. Mm -hmm. um, finance because they have the highest amount of leverage for a little bit more data. Um, so, you know, when they can get access to a little bit more data for one reason or another, um, you know, they're 
they have the ability to make millions of dollars off of it pretty instantly. Um, and healthcare, just because the data is so private and so personal, um, but a lot of research and development is held back by lack of ability for hospitals to be able to collaborate and, and pool their sort of local small data sets into larger ones that allow models to generalize better. You mentioned some kind of point challenges on the differential privacy side that need to be solved to better facilitate all of this. Um, can you, are there some examples of those that you can share? So from what I've observed, there's two different kinds of differential privacy, right? There's local and there's global. Mm -hmm. um, local differential privacy focuses on actually adding noise to each individual row of data to make sure that each individual row of data is protected before you even do anything to it, right? Mm -hmm. But as you can imagine, if you have a million data points, that means you're adding you know, a ton of noise to the, to the data set as a whole. Um, and you need to have like a lot of people in order to be able to get interesting insights about it because you've had to add so much noise to each individual data point. Global differential privacy allows you to, to compute some function on the data um, and then only add noise to the output, which can actually be relatively small amounts depending on what, what that function is. Mm -hmm. um, so one thing I have yet to see in deep learning literature is um, a global differential privacy technique that, that really fits the business use case that people want to use it for. Um, the, the best one that I know of that comes to mind is the Pate algorithm, which I think if people know differential privacy and deep learning is probably the one that they'd be most familiar with. Um, this is a, a really innovative uh, approach um, wherein um, you split a data set into 10 different buckets or in different buckets, I'll just use 10 as an example, mm -hmm. and you train a model on each different one that's, that's a private model. Um, and then there's this uh, clever trick where you can use these models to annotate a second data set um, mm -hmm. that is a public data set in a way that all of the labels, you can sort of enforce differential privacy by the way that you label this second data set using these private models such that you then train a, another model on this sort of synthetic, synthetically labeled data set. Mm -hmm. um, I think that one's Nicholas Papernow. Yeah, that's right. Who, uh, yeah, yeah. We did a podcast interview with him as well. Oh, excellent, excellent, yeah. yeah. So I think that's probably the, the most famous and most successful general purpose deep learning um, for differential privacy algorithm that we have. Mm -hmm. um, but the problem is, is that it requires this, this second data set that you already have. Mm -hmm. And in practice, in industry, um, this is, not usually the case, right? So if I'm a hospital network and I've got, say, 50,000 examples that are unlabeled, um, the friction for me to go to 10 other hospitals and, and train models with all of them and synthesize this new model just so I can annotate my data set and train my secondary mm -hmm. model, is, is a, it's a pretty rare use case. Typically, yeah. it's cheaper and easier for them to just pay someone to annotate it, right? Uh, it's a little more straightforward and it's not as experimental, that kind of thing. So okay. if, if we can figure out a way where um, you can have a similar level of global differential privacy like this, actually even, it's debatable whether this is global or local, it's actually, it's probably closer to local. Um, um, which doesn't have this core assumption, um, that would that would be a pretty big breakthrough, and it would be it would be the kind of thing where um, th that's the form of, of DP technique that that would be general purpose, I think, and and I would I would very much like to see sort of um, someone push through on that on that front, but obviously lots of people are trying, and we'll uh, hopefully we'll have something in the next little while. Cool. Um, Any uh, pointers or thoughts or folks that want to dig more into this area, where should they start looking for, um, you know, ways to get up to speed on these three pillars or your project? 
Um, yeah, so I mean, the, the three activities that we do in OpenMind uh, hopefully are designed to make that as easy as possible. So um, we build open source tools, we create learning resources, um, and we build community through like hackathons and through the Slack cha channel. Mm. So um, <clears throat> the first thing that I'd recommend is join the Slack team and kind of scroll through the articles people are posting. So you can go to slack.openmind.org. Uh, OpenMind is spelled O-P-E-N-M-I-N-E-D. Mm -hmm. Yeah, hop in the general discussion, you know, say hello. And then... Uh, we, I just finished writing a nine-length notebook tutorial uh, walking from the very basics of huh. kind of remote execution through federated learning and secure MPC. Um, it'll be extended with different for privacy uh, in a bit. And the real goal of that tutorial series is just to walk someone who you know just knows, in this case, PyTorch, um, through in a very you know hands-on kind of way um, how these how these techniques work. Awesome. Yeah. Awesome. Well, Andrew, thanks so much for taking the time to chat with me. It was great to meet you. Great to meet you too. All right, everyone, that's our show for today. To learn more about today's guest or the topics mentioned in this interview, visit twimmelai.com. Of course, if you like what you hear on the podcast, please subscribe, rate, and review the show on your favorite podcatcher. Thanks so much for listening and catch you next time.